Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we're talking about toxicity. I thought it might be good to just talk about what it is to be toxic or what it means uh, for a toxin to exist. And I think it's mostly like an external um, element that you're attempting to avoid or it's something that is like part of the environment that you have to protect yourself from. And so when we talk about toxicity uh, in a more feminist context. We talk about like an external social cultural element like seeping in and infecting like individual behavior. And so when we talk about, I, I think it's this term has become really popular just in the last several years, toxic masculinity. We're talking about like an overarching social construct about masculinity that causes individual men to behave aberrantly. You know, I should, I suppose, start with my bias against toxicity as an analytic because I think that while feminists of all varieties have tried to use toxicity to describe structural violence in particular, but also, um, masculinity as a rigid system that can be easily described and traced through time. Uh, ultimately, toxicity as an analytic is a problem because the behaviors to it that it points to are much more, I think, about unmet fundamental needs, psychological needs, physical needs, social needs, than they are about pathology per se. So I am always wary about pathologizing social behavior um, and metaphors like contagion or disease as things that we use to talk about what are fundamentally social scripts because I think that it, it, it sort of shifts our attention to the individual doing the behavior and not to the way that the culture itself produces preferred forms of politics, you know, whether that's gender politics or gender and race politics or gender, race and class mm -hmm. politics or whatever. I think that fundamentally when people are violent or when they are wielding power in ways that are unequal, I don't think that pathology is the way that we want to describe it. I think we want to talk about incentives and disincentives that exist socially to perform, you know, behaviors that have been tolerated in the past. I think we want to talk about nostalgia for certain forms of identities that um, have been critiqued vociferously, especially by women and people of color. And I think we want to talk about needs that are unmet as a result of capitalism or as a result of, um, you know, a poorly conceived notion of family or as a result of structures that exist beyond, you know, one's personal identity as a gendered or sexed individual. What do you think about that? Well, I think, like, a lot of what we've been talking about for the last several seasons is, like, avoiding that broad stroke. And, uh, you know, it's an easy ditch to fall into when mm -hmm. we're talking about these kinds of things because 
uh, there are pervasive social structures that are extremely damaging for so many people. Mm-hmm. So it's really easy to be like, capitalism, am I right? Yeah. You know, like, patriarchy, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, it's really easy to get into these broad, like, overstrokes that, but it lacks nuance, you know, in the way that we are trying to address, like, what the outcomes are. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I just think that toxicity, it's really hard for me because I think that it fundamentally relies on shaming as a mechanism of disciplinary control. And obviously we talked about shame in season one and season two a lot. And, you know, so listeners will know that I hate shame as an operating, you know, uh, affective control mechanism. And so I don't think that it's helpful to just be like, all masculinity is toxic. That's obviously foolish and not true. And I don't think that it's helpful to be like, all white people are toxic if you're trying to mm-hmm. transform whiteness to be non-supremacist. So I think that instead of using toxicity as the broad stroke through which we talk about behaviors that are mm-hmm. fundamentally violent, um, I think it's more useful to think through how we might operationalize um, transformation because just labeling stuff as toxic provides zero transformational behaviors exactly. that people can come to. So it's just like a list of things that you suck at because you're white or because you're a dude and um, not enough about what it means to inhabit bodies like that and use them in a transformative way. And I also hate the toxic masculinity thing because I mean, let's ask Emmett Till about what he thinks about toxic white femininity, you know? I mean, it's not like masculinity itself is the problem. The problem is the way in which identities get politicized in, you know, colonial empires, (laughs) you know? So it's not helpful Mm -hmm. to say toxic white masculinity and then not talk about toxic white femininity, right? There's all of this stuff that gets limited out and the focus, I think, gets, I don't know, shifted. I like that you said that because I think that there's a whole system of like enabling bad behavior that way and I think labeling things as toxic kind of externalizes the blame. It displaces it like on an external factor. I really think it should be like enabled masculinity or enabled like uh, whatever structure of power you want to put in place. White femininity being one of those you create the system around yourself where you're allowed to behave in the way that you think you should, whatever you think power you think you have over other people, and you surround yourself with people who aren't critical of your own actions and behavior. So you basically cut yourself off from criticism. And that, I don't think it's toxicity. I think it's like, it's smoke and mirrors. It's like a you put yourself in a carnival of your own, uh, where you like reproduce your own yeah. thoughts and feelings, and like you're unable to accept and like collaborate with other people because collaboration fundamentally means that you go, listen, go, go, go. that you actually listen to people, yep. and you don't just hear your own voice echoing back to you. I mean, the thing is, is that I just think fundamentally people do not understand that that they have control over the intentionality of the architecture of self. They don't understand they have control. They feel powerless over it. They feel compelled to perform social scripts because they don't see other alternatives. I mean, it just, people are in the world just reacting, right? Which is why they're so anxious, and we talked a lot about that in the anxiety episode. They're just reflexively producing 
the things that they've seen without being able to step away from those habits and think intentionally about what kind of self they want to portray to the world. So the intervention is not in the large level structural description of toxic behavior per se. That is, it's too broad, it's too big, it's not useful as an analytic that way because really what we want to drill down to is how can we see historical practices incentivizing and disincentivizing collective action. So like you know, R. Kelly and Michael Jackson are in the news right now, you know, it, and so we, we have to talk about them in the same time that we're watching, you know, Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings and, you know, Trump's rolling back of women's rights and the stealing of the kids in the border. And all of these things are happening at the same time because I think fundamentally we're at a crossroads in the U.S. but elsewhere, the Brexit revote potentially is going to be part of this about what it means to be an accountable citizen to other people. So it's like finally the globe is leveling up about race consciousness and gender consciousness and empire and thinking about these large scale ideas that you know started being produced as real public critique in the US probably with the boys and now it's like what does accountability look like and how does that transform an entire country and so on the one hand you've got Kavanaugh and you've got rape culture and you know whiteness in, co in college and the judicial branch is a bastion of the most conservative forms of masculinity in America and you know you've got the way in which the Senate held Obama hostage to not confirm federal judge appointees and all of that is a stew of trying to preserve conservative white power and then on the other hand, you've got these documentaries, right, which it, documentaries are mostly about shame on the whole, shaming us into environmental action or shaming us about our behaviors, or our consumption patterns or whatever. I mean, that documentary form is mostly about shame. And so we have the shaming of R. Kelly and Michael Jackson. And now, look, nobody's going to be an apologist for sex crimes. But at the end of the day, if you don't see black boys as victims of tremendous amounts of violence, and both of those men were abused tremendously as children, you're not getting a full picture of what the toxicity is. It's not the individual that's the predator per se. It's an entire system of violence that comes crashing down on their identity early where they dissociate with it, with any kind of accountability because they don't have it, because they're not grounded to it, because the culture is supporting the violence against them over their own agency. And so, you know, I think that we're in for a reckoning about identity and violence, and this is a moment where there is space to innovate around collectivity and identity that is being underutilized because we're still at like this baby consciousness raising crap level of analysis. I mean, it's it's real tough in the Michael Jackson and R. Kelly situation because like there are black men who have power that like the culture doesn't want them to have. And they get yeah. it, they get that power and they have a lot of difficulty letting go of that power even if, like if, if it means apologizing for bad behavior what i dislike about what's happening with the r kelly and michael jackson um documentaries is that i think it's producing a bunch of collective shame about not patrolling their behaviors when really the object of intervention should have been um the care of children of black children of black boy children and Michael Jackson and R. Kelly were not cared for as children. They were they were abused sexually and emotionally and verbally, and they, they were broken as boys. And that I think changes what accountability looks like 
in a in a post-slave culture and a, a culture where emancipation never happened and a culture where white people are not accountable for their actions against black people through segregation in the workplace or housing or employment you know whatever mm -hmm. wages um and so I'm interested in accountability, but I'm interested in it not at the end of a life cycle, right? But at the beginning of a life cycle of a city or of a nation or of a person. And I just think that what happens in those cases is that we're not meeting the needs of the people that are in our communities. So their needs are going unmet. They don't have health care. They don't have mental health care. They don't have... You know, they don't have affordable housing. The people of Flint still don't have fucking clean water. We are not taking care of our neighbors, and so they are suffering, and it is producing social violence as a consequence of wealth hoarding, period. So it's hard for me to see that the, that the intervention is at the personal level, particularly with Michael Jackson and R. Kelly, where I feel differently about it with Kavanaugh because he's been such a beneficiary structurally of that anti-black and brown violence. And the consumption of black and brown and, and female bodies, too, I think is what shores up, you know, the governmentality, especially of the judicial system. So I feel like, you know, the idea that R. Kelly and Michael Jackson have power is sort of relative, right? Because at the end of the day, they're still black men. You know what I'm saying? in a way that that undermines notions of their own agency even for themselves. That's part of what I like struggle with with like using toxic. First of all, because you mentioned Flint and there are like actual physical toxins that are yes. inflicted on people as a function of capitalism that are like actually damaging to bodies. And I guess that we are having this conversation about Kavanaugh and R. Kelly and Michael Jackson and we're not like they don't they didn't feel like they were accountable because they knew that there was like a larger social structure they felt supported by other people I mean Kavanaugh did there's no way that Michael Jackson would report to you that he felt secure as a child or as an adult person that is a deeply insecure anxious man who had, did not have his needs met, whose dad beat him with electrical cords, who his brothers had sex with groupies in front of him while he was at five and six years old. I mean, he was he was jacked up from the jump, right? I mean, it, he had no chance to be whatever, healthy or integrated or a whole self. That's why he got stuck in childhood. He was not a whole human being. Same thing is true of R. Kelly. And especially because we deny black people, but black men in particular, any wholeness in a society that is so pervasively anti-black male, they did not have the chance to achieve the kind of agency that Kavanaugh did. So the weird thing to me is in thinking somehow that accountability is not also scaled to race, gender, sex, class, privilege. And the other thing that's weird about that is removing justice from thinking about toxicity. In the same way that Flint is still, you know, full of shitty lead water, that's an issue of environmental justice. What it, where, how do we think about toxicity? It's removed from thinking about justice. Justice would seem to be the restorative. It would be the reparative impulse, right? Instead of shame. So I would like to see toxicity related to justice rather than, say, fragility. Because even though fragility is a thing, and Robin D'Angelo has done such great work thinking about how fragility manifests inside individual people as part of a structural refusal to see 
um, their complicity in social violence, their inability to manage any kind of criticism about their own violence. I think that the larger problem is not necessarily fragility, it's about incentivizing violence as part of the makeup of whiteness or masculinity or white femininity or cis-hetero privilege. It is about incentivizing that violence against children. And you know this if you have any children, if, you, if you're around children at all, they start patrolling each other on the playground in preschool about who's got a boyfriend and girlfriend and who's gay and who's not. So the data is very clear that there's disincentivizing happening at the same time that preferred modes of being are being rewarded socially through violence. So that's the level, I think, of it's not the shame that you're too fragile to hear the criticism that's the problem, although that's a descriptive that's true. It's that the violence is being incentivized and people are benefiting from it. The thing about fragility I think that's useful is that there's at least part of a corrective there, right? Fragility names a cluster of feelings that are produced, that are somewhat intellectualized, but also some of it is just autonomic nervous system, right? Like white people get afraid to talk about race and they don't want to say the wrong thing. That is like their physical body reaction to talking about blackness that is so inculcated among white people that it is not a conscious production of identity, right? So fragility is useful in doing those two things. One saying, okay, well here, here are the words to describe how you're feeling. And also here is how it's both conscious and totally unconscious at the same time. There's utility in that, I think it's an intervention for the self. But on the whole, the question is really about what are the needs that are getting met and what we're not talking about is how what we're calling toxic whiteness or toxic white masculinity doesn't leave a room to reimagine selves away from whiteness or masculinity, right? In one of the earlier episodes, I was talking about the weird shift at the end of the 70s before Reagan, where you have all this androgyny with disco and with Bowie, and the move is away from rigid binaries. And then, of course, Reagan reintroduces the binary as the analytic of the administration to create haves and haves nots and winners and losers in public policy and in life. And this is a moment, I think, where we want to be careful about not reifying the categories that we want to explode. And I think toxic masculinity is about attaching a very fixed kind of masculinity to bodies, and I do not think we want to go that way. It seems to me a more expansive, productive analytic would not be about men and women, toxic men, toxic women, masculinity is a real thing. It would be about destroying right, the notion of masculinity at all. It does seem like men and even boys attach themselves to like certain like identifiers of masculinity which are often like bad for other people like violence and homophobia and the devaluation of women and um, peacocking like there's a whole series of behaviors that are ingrained and that boys and men are taught and act through that are like not productive for anyone other than white men for yeah. the most part. I mean those hegemonic behaviors, R.W. Connell calls that hegemonic masculinity, are mostly confined to white men. I mean if you look at non-white men of lots of varieties, they actually break down against strength and dominance and woman hating in a bunch of ways that are useful in disaggregating masculinity as, a, as something that we can use to describe all quote-unquote men of any variety. Um, but it just seems to me that those behaviors of social violence are not descriptive of 
of a lot of people and that's why they cannot hear toxic masculinity as a productive thing that's going to help them transform much of anything it's because it doesn't apply to a bunch of groups of people who are not doing toxic masculinity right I mean, if we think about mass shooters, for example, right, because they come up in a lot of the toxic masculinity thing, it, you know, it's not women who are out shooting up schools. It's not men of color of any kind. It's not queers. It's not trans people. There are just huge swaths of people that are not producing that kind of behavior that can't fall into mm -hmm. the analytic of toxicity. And so I would just like to think about what that, what it looks like to, to think that through, right? Because it's not like, it's not an aggregate around masculinity. And I think it's fundamentally undermining the ability to transform people's consciousness or their relationship to participatory democracy or their interest in caring about their neighbors because fundamentally all that toxicity asks is for people to acknowledge their, short, their shortcomings and failures, and that's it. Right? You're a failure because you're a racist. You're a failure because you're a sexist. You're a failure because you're white as a part of your fixed, you know, physical identity. And I just don't think that that is where we need to be going. It seems to me that we should all accept, yes, that this is how, you know, nation states have built white power and privilege. But in order to transform it, it has to go beyond that. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem fun for the people who are acting out in these in ways that are violent. Like, I don't think it's, it doesn't seem fun for them either. <laughs> so, I mean, it's obviously like, they feel like they have to perform in a certain way. And some of them are successful at it and take advantage of it. But also, like, if that's not who you are, then that becomes a very difficult position to take. And then it creates a lot of confusion and then aggression. And I think a lot of the folks who end up being extremely violent don't feel like they fit in to that like paradigm of masculinity or any other uh, kind of culture because it's so rigid. Mm -hmm. It's just so brittle and it's so reductive. And there's a ton of men that don't fit in. Well, it's just it, the, the thing that's happening is alienation. Right? That is the fundamental thing that's happening. It's happening because we're working more hours than ever and we're, you know, our labor is completely stolen and wages are stagnant and debt is crushing and nobody's getting laid. And I mean, you know, there are just all of these structural things that are producing a kind of alienation that makes it hard for me to see why toxicity is the way that we want to label um, the phenomena that are happening. And instead of producing alienation, I want to think about what it means to actually build, you know, the healthy, sustainable, collective future. That's why, you know, there's a vested interest in not providing family medical leave and not funding prenatal care and not funding pre-kindergarten and not funding all of this social welfare apparatus that would produce healthier fucking adult people, right, who would not then lash out or withhold because their fucking needs are met by a culture that wants them to succeed instead of this, you know, hyper-competitive, violent culture that wants to pretend that success happens at the expense of another. They want it to, to be that way 
so that they can smash and grab all the wealth to the top. So for me, I, I hate labeling the individual behaviors that are a consequence of wealth hoarding as a personal failing or an inability to understand PC culture. And I would much rather say, if you don't fucking fund, you know, ch children's programs, you get violent adults. And if you don't create a culture that has access to healthcare, you get sick people, right? Mm -hmm. And there has got to be a large scale intervention in those things as a way of transforming the culture and producing healthier adult humans who have better behaviors. It's not an individual failing at the point at which the society fucking refuses to invest in its citizens. That's criminal neglect. Right. It's, it's anti-citizenship, fundamentally anti-citizenship. Part of the thing is, like, businesses as people. Oh, yeah. And that, like, even if you're a business owner and maybe you are still a good person... Uh, you don't have a ton of resources and you're struggling to make it because if you're a small business owner, you don't get some of the tax breaks that larger corporations sure. get. And I can tell that the entire system is bad from like the top down. And so it's really hard to have any support. And I'm thinking of like the restaurants that I worked at oh, yeah. And the lack of this, uh, the lack of support that everyone feels, and like the individual blame. Like if you're one minute late, you know, everything was like you're almost like a contract worker at a restaurant. You don't get paid for anything. You don't get benefits. There's like no real advantage. <laughs> um, and the rate of like alcohol and drug abuse is just so high yes. because like people cope that way and they all feel like it's their own fault but really like it's a real structural problem that's not being addressed and I the weight of that responsibility is also placed on the employer who doesn't have the resources to handle that kind of like gross <laughs> failure that's because the, the hyper individualism shunts yeah. all of the risk 100% on the poorest most vulnerable members which is the difference between R. Kelly and Michael Jackson and Kavanaugh. And so when you do that, when you massively dump risk on the most precarious people, they fucking crack, okay? And so if we're not going to invest in them, then we're basically saying, yeah, we're willing to create an entire underclass of broken-ass people and then somehow blame them for their inability to navigate a culture that is rigged to totally destroy them, right? I mean, and so for me, it's not so healthy. It's not so helpful to name their identity markers so much as it is to create analytics that actually build solidarity to transform those markers as the only indicator of character. And I just, I think it, I think that in, in describing things with toxicity, especially as a modifier of whiteness or masculinity, it is undermining the ability to create transformative categories of being that transcend those extremely limited understandings of race, sex, class, gender. And um, I think that we're at a moment where these things are in flux because you're going to see a massive amount of change in the courts and the way that they're legislating bodies and privacy and access to healthcare and all these things. And it's going to crack and it's going to create opportunities to redefine 
politics around analytics that are not narrowly invested in identity politics. And so I think right now, for me, it, there's an opportunity here to think differently about the vocabulary that we're using to try and describe social phenomena that are incredibly complex, but that are ultimately producing feelings of alienation, despair, and anxiety that are leading to social violence in a way that redirects our attention to collective action towards large-scale welfare policy to create a healthier nation, a healthier community where everybody gets to benefit the same way regardless of their ge geography or their you know, wealth or privilege. It's hard to envision that conversation while also the immigration conversation is happening because a lot of it is like all these people are getting free resources like all at, you know it's like rich white men who are like they didn't work for this and now they get like all of these resources yeah. that we worked for even though they have no like real concept of the fact that they didn't have to work for anything that they got. <laughs> I mean, you know, I feel that, so one, in one of the early episodes in season one or two, I went on a rant about the best thing about Occupy Wall Street is creating the meme about the 1%. That's true. The best thing about Amazon is this meme about Bezos not paying any taxes on the gazillions of fucking dollars of profit Amazon has made. And so Amazon is going to occupy this space in the cultural imaginary as the predatory conglomerate that is destroying labor in America in a very serious and nefarious way. And people are going to have to have a, a discussion about whether convenience is going to overcome all of the wealth that's being strided right up to the top. And that is a useful conversation to have, and it's useful to embody it in Bezos himself, and it's useful to pin it on Amazon as sort of the meme of what is happening to everybody in every other mm -hmm. arena of their life, right? Is that the, everybody is so overworked and alienated that convenience is the only rubric through which they can even make decisions about shit. And so they are just short-circuiting intentionality and doing the easiest thing all the time, which is whiteness or white masculinity or white femininity or privilege or fragility or whatever. And those become automatic responses to any kind of social stress because everybody's so fucked up and doesn't have any health care. And so I actually think that this is this moment is it's we're here. We're at the precipice of a total the shit is gonna break, okay? The healthcare system is broken, the mm. environmental system is broken. You know, unions are about to get busted. Roe v. Wade is going to be destroyed. And there's going to be a tremendous groundswell of poor people and middle class people getting so fucked, they're going to have to have a different way to describe their interest convergence and their needs. And I'm just saying that this, like, puff piece shitty analytic that is toxic masculinity is not the way to do that, I think. So fundamentally, I think it's undermining our ability to describe the extremely fluid and, um, I, I don't know, fluid and dynamic political situation that we find ourselves in now. I mean, it is fucked up. People stay in toxic situations. Like, from an individual standpoint, I've, like, stayed in a job where I had, like, a boss who talked over me and interrupted me and was honestly, like, fraud and a con person, like, just because yeah, I got health insurance. And, like, I don't have, yeah, I'm sure I, if I spent the time and energy, at some point I could find another position that would pay health insurance. But, like, that's not a guarantee. And I have guaranteed health insurance. And so, like, there are situations, and this, I mean, it's not like I'm the only person who's just, like, I guess I have to 
work in an Amazon warehouse. Yeah, totally. I guess I have to work for Amazon because how else ICE, am I? Or the fucking Border Patrol or anybody sure. in the Trump administration. I mean, you know, the thing about it is, is that I just don't like it being about just personal accountability because that is not really what's happening. It's really not. It I is, mean, we talked about this in the consent episode, too. I know. It, it, it's about it's, property. Yeah. <laughs> it's fundamentally about property. Toxicity is about property and propertylessness and being property. That is, it's the same dynamic that, that's happening there. And I just feel like the identity politics of toxic whiteness mask the way that the wealth is being aggregated at the top. And I also think that there are just a whole host of behaviors that are emotional behaviors and social behaviors that happen in relationships of all kind, whether they're workplace related or whether they're romantic or whether they're familial, that are labeled as toxic, whether that's gaslighting or codependence or whatever. And all of that stuff is all about shame. You made the wrong decision in arranging your life this way. You picked the wrong partner. You made the wrong calls. You didn't trust your gut. You know, you had the agency and fucked it up. You, 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 you. In a culture where nobody has any of the tools to successfully navigate human relationships because the shit is set up to be busted from the jump. Whether it's monogamy or the nuclear family or childhood or public education, all of that stuff is constant under constant siege. And so everybody is operating from a state of total austerity and precarity. Not enough affection, not enough play, not enough time off, not enough love, not enough self-care, not enough. And so they will seize any tiny little, right, shiny thing that they can to try and find some respite from the sense that everything is just, you know, a groundswell of violence against them. And that's not like you made a bad choice. It, I mean, it's, it just really is fundamentally not about individual accountability at that point. It has to be about something that we can all describe and take part to change. And so that cannot fall to the responsibility only of the individual. It has to be a collective, transformative thing. It, it has to be collective, but we do have to hold people accountable. I mean, I don't disagree, except I will say that the prison system is totally jacked. And For all sure. of the laws are jacked. And the judges are corrupt, and they sell kids into slavery. And so, you know, yes, that is true. In an ideal world, there would be accountability that is distributed as equally as risk. But they have to go together. You have to distribute the risk equally so that the accountability can be equal. Right. Because if Bre Brett Kavanaugh is not held accountable, then I don't know who else. Correct. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't want a black man to be held accountable for the same things and then go to prison. Which, yes. I know that's how it happens. Yes. I know that's the thing about the drug, the Cocaine war on drugs. Yes. Right. 100% sentencing disparities. And but also, I think most of the interventions that we would want to make to build a healthier culture are not at the level of punishment. They are at the level of education and care, period. So if you take care of the education and you take care of what people fundamentally emotionally need, you are not going to have to have so much accountability talk because people are not getting fucked. I mean, it's just, it, the accountability question changes so massively if you have an employment guarantee or if you have a livable wage or if you have a decriminalized justice system, right, where we're decriminalizing drugs or all of these things change, okay? If, there's a, if you have positive consent language in a sex ed program, then the language about rape culture changes. Or any kind of social support where mothers... Yes, yes, yes. You see where I'm going with this. Right. Yeah, yeah I mean, it just, it, the accountability is not where this conversation needs to start, I don't think. I just, and that's not to say that obviously, you know, we want people who are serial rapists to stop raping. I'm into that. 
But the point of in in intervention is not jailing them. The point is not producing rape culture. The point is in transforming the way that we see sex and sexuality. The point is in transforming property relations that create sexualities that are penalized or incentivized. So I guess what I'm saying is that until the risk is distributed more equally, the accountability cannot be the place where we start the conversation. And with toxicness, whether it's about whiteness or whether it's about sex gender, is an accountability space and not a transformative public policy space.